You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Tonight's reading from 1 Samuel, we are introduced to the figure of David. He's still just a boy. He actually doesn't say a word in this passage. But the reader is given the inside track on the story of a man who looms large in the imagination of ancient Israel. We will be tracking David's story his ups and downs, his complications, his troubling story, from now through to the middle of August. These stories of David won't be the only things I'm going to preach on during these months, but you have to know, given my love of story, I'm not going to be able to resist at least commenting as we go. The story began with a bit of subterfuge on the part of the prophet Samuel. If you remember Paul's sermon from last Sunday, Samuel had come out strongly in opposition to the people's call for a king. You are old, they'd said to Samuel. Your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like the other nations. A king like the other nations? That's what you want, Samuel says. Careful what you wish for. Your sons will end up conscripted as soldiers. Your daughters will be made servants. Your crops and land will be taxed. And before you know it, you'll have a rigid hierarchy just like all of the other nations have. But they persist, and their request is fulfilled. They get a king named Saul, and he looks pretty good at first. According to the text, Saul's father was wealthy, so that's a fair start for a king. And further, quote, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than Saul. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else, a sort of a a Hollywood monarch. I suspect that Samuel was still rolling his eyes a bit at the madness of the people wanting a king. But when he's called upon, he duly anoints Saul, and Israel gets what they wished for. Except, rather predictably, Saul doesn't live up to his calling. Quite quickly, it's apparent that he thinks his own political savvy is wiser than God's will. That's a story that's a bit too complicated to get into here tonight. But the upshot is that the Lord was sorry that he'd made Saul king over Israel. That's the line from the text, and it's an interesting one, isn't it? God is sorry. Has God made a mistake? Klaus Peter Adam offers a really helpful take on that line. He writes, Rather than molding Yahweh's regret as the hallmark of a fickle, inconsistent deity, it points to an inner move of God. It condenses a critical insight about Israel's God. Far from static or distanced, 
Yahweh reacts to humankind's actions. It's dynamic. God reacts to humankind's actions, and in this case, that means sending Samuel on a mission to find a new king, a proper king, the kind of king Israel really needs. The message is, never mind the good looks, Samuel. Don't mind that. What you want to pay attention to is the character of the potential king's heart. Problem, though, is that Saul is still very much alive and on the throne. So when Samuel goes out to find a new king, he's essentially committing treason. That's the reason for all the material in the first half of our reading today. When Samuel goes to Bethlehem on the pretense of going to offer a sacrifice there, the elders of the city came to meet Samuel trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Why are they trembling? Why are they afraid? Well, Samuel is a recognizable figure whose presence with the king is well known. So, has he come here to claim some of our land? To take our sons and daughters for the king? Is trouble brewing? No, 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 no. I'm here in peace, Samuel replies. I just want to make a sacrifice to the Lord here in your territory. Come along and join me. And among those who join Samuel are Jesse and seven of his sons. Jesse being the very one that Samuel had been told to seek out because that family had borne the one who would be the new king. When they came, the text says, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But no, Eliab is not the one, Samuel is told. Do not look on his appearance or on his height of stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Never mind your Hollywood-style monarch, Samuel. And so one after another, the sons of Jesse are brought in front of Samuel. And one after another, it is no, no, no. Do you have other sons? Samuel asked Jesse after seeing all seven of these. Well, sure, Jesse replies, there's the youngest one, but he's out tending the sheep. Which suggests that even in his own family, this younger one, this youngest one, is deemed to be not all that important. A hugely significant guest is coming to offer sacrifice, and he's invited us to participate in that. No, David, you can't come. We'll go. You can't come. Go to the sheep. That's your first duty, my boy. Go get the youngest one, Samuel says. I'll wait. When that boy arrives on the scene, surprise, he's the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Here's the funny thing. For all that the instructions had been to not look on the physical appearance, I mean, that has been repeated. The writer of the story still can't resist saying 
that David was, quote, ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Here Walter Brueggemann comments, Perhaps David's appearance is noted because those who valued the story most wanted to hear of his loveliness. The young David is one of the marginal people. He's uncredentialed and has no social claim to make. Those who fastened on to this story most passionately may have been those who, like David, were marginal, with no credentials and no social claim. For such people, it would be important to assert and celebrate that among the marginal, there are beautiful people, that among the little ones, there is potential for greatness. Yes, David is the youngest, the eighth born, And in the familial pecking order of that ancient world, he was without much hope of any stature beyond shepherd and then farmhand. But God, as it turns out, is no respecter of pecking orders, no fan of credentials and conventional social status. Looking to the last, the least, the lost, and the little is so often God's way of doing things in these ancient stories. And those who first heard them told, could relate, because so many of them were without status as well. Oh, but they love David, for he is as unlikely as any one of them to have been chosen, and yet chosen he is. And even as they hear of the youngest being chosen, they can't help but smile at the fact that not only is his heart in the right place, he's good-looking to boot. Now, consider this from the Gospel reading. Jesus also said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It's like, a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs, puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The kingdom of God takes the tiniest seed, the youngest son who knows only sheep, And from it bursts the greatest of all shrubs. Robert Ferrer Capon observes here that the real point of the parable is the marvelous discrepancy between the hiddenness of the kingdom at its sowing and the lush, manifest exuberance of it in its final, totally successful fruition. Don't count out the little ones. Don't bypass the shepherd boy. Don't forget the mustard seed or how a little bit of yeast buried in the dough makes the bread happen. Don't dismiss the statusless, the uncredentials, the one that conventional society has little time or respect for, And certainly don't bypass the children. That's a core message in the gospel. Attend to the children. 
Don't imagine for a minute that we in the so-called dominant culture have nothing to learn from other cultures who we might see as being marginal or needy or more troubled. In our context here in Canada, that might mean indigenous cultures and communities as well as newcomers and refugees. We dare not count out their stories their experiences, their gifts to the society. And after the incidents last Sunday in London, Ontario, with the murder of that family, we dare not forget their pain. These texts tonight say, shelve the old assumptions and pay close attention. In God's way of doing things, we're almost bound to be surprised by what comes from the edges, what comes to us from the last and the lost and the least and the little. And if we're honest, in our brokenness, that includes us all. That's the good news, the challenging news, and the Davidic news for this Sunday in June. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.